0: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Lydis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock Is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And today, by way of a contrast, nothing we want to keep the same every week, anyway, is just one person, a veteran himself of uh, the music industry, a publicist for uh, a good long time, and an author himself, His name is Dennis McNally, but we'll leave uh, the introduction to him. All I can tell you is he spent uh, a long time with the Grateful Dead and to talk about Insider Insights, Dennis has them all. But we'll let him introduce himself.
1: My name is Dennis McNally and I was the Grateful Dead's publicist from 1984 until Jerry's death and then with the company for another 10, 15 years. I also wrote a book uh, about the Grateful Dead uh, called A Long Strange Trip, uh, the Inside History of the Grateful Dead, which, plug, um, actually made it to the New York Times bestseller list for one week, um, but it was a good week. Before I became the publicist, uh, in 1980, Jerry Garcia uh, invited me to be their biographer uh, because he liked the book I had done about Jack Kerouac, um, who I might add uh, just last weekend, his, was the centennial of his birth, hundred years. What it was really getting to me uh, last week um, was that my, I began that book 50 years ago. Um, I had the idea in February of 1972, a, a, a guy gave it to me, uh, gave me the idea. Um, I have, was talking about sort of generalities and he said, uh, you should write a book about Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. So I wrote that book about Kerouac and I, in the process, the same guy had also turned me on The Grateful Dead and uh, I wanted to uh, write a book about The Grateful Dead and uh, the universe decided to listen to me and Jerry. Um, and I eventually met Jerry and oh so casually mentioned that I had written this book and sent it to him. And he got very excited because Kerouac, when he was 16, Kerouac was his role, his. Role model, and frankly, it stayed that way until the day he died. Um, he, his, you know, sort of way of navigating through life, um, he he took from the lessons of on the road uh, about improvisation and spontaneity, and etc. Brought me in as the biographer. I worked on that for a while. Uh, they needed a publicist, and I needed a job, and I tried to do both simultaneously, which was clinically insane. Um, not only because the mentality of of being an honest historian, and I think I was, um, uh, and a publicist publicist is there to uh, to be kind to his client. Um, I, I never had to lie working for the Grateful Dead because the truth was much weirder and stranger than anything anybody would believe anyway. Um, uh, there were some things I didn't say, obviously, but uh, so then I became a publicist and and enjoyed. Um. Oh, moments that you wouldn't believe. I'll give you another example of of the world of Grateful Dead. Not music with the Grateful Dead, but not music per se. Places that you never, ever, ever thought you'd be and are thanks to being with fill in the blank. But in this case, the Grateful Dead. Um, we had played uh, a weekend in Telluride, Colorado. And uh, it was there were daytime shows and it was summer, so um, it was still quite light, six o'clock. <clears throat> and because uh, the the airport in Telluride is like nine thousand feet or something, uh, it was quite you know high altitude. We didn't have our usual plushy um, uh, plane, uh, you know, charter jet. Uh, the the they just couldn't lift lift off with the you know bodies and and. um, Suitcases and all that. So we had this very odd plane, um which was a, it looked like a, like a DC three out of nineteen thirty six. It it uh, one one seat on each side of the aisle. Everybody had a window. This is relevant as as you'll see. So we get up in the air. Tomorrow's a day off, and everybody's very relaxed. And uh, <laughs> the pilot comes on. And he says, "Do you guys want to go? Sh-? We we're going to Phoenix, where it was one hundred and eighteen, by the way. Do you guys want to go straight to Phoenix, or do you want to?" be tourists. Well, you know, this bunch, that was an easy question. Tourist, do you wanna see the Black Canyon of the Gunnison or Monument Valley? Monument Valley, great. So most folks know about Monument Valley and if you don't know, Google it, you, you know, you'll be very glad you did. It is a very Southern Utah and it's one of the most spectacular places on the planet. Um, and it has these buttes, right? And they rise about 2000 feet above the valley floor. And we went into, and by now it's getting near, starting to get near sunset, so it's twilight. And all this, all these buttes are made of sandstone, which just in the right light, just sort of ooze color. It's just unbelievable. And we went into the valley at 1,000 feet. So there's buttes going off into infinity above us and they're below us and there's this valley. And, and yeah, you know, it was, I mean, I'm pretty sure that was illegal, um, but you know, nobody caught him. Um, but what was really a bit hilarious about it is, you know, because this is the world of the grateful dead, at that moment, uh, Mickey Hart had purchased a Boa constrictor, true story, uh Boa constrictor earlier in the tour. And the, the Charlie, his name, Cosmic Charlie, which was a dead song. Uh Charlie was now on the floor of the plane. Um you know, wiggling around, and when he touched certain people's feet, they would react with horror. Mickey's son, Taro, who was then about seven or eight, is sitting in the pilot's lap, who, and the pilot swears Taro's flying the plane. And just to top it all off, in the back, right behind me and across the aisle, is Jerry, who's giving a film history lesson. Because, um, again, for those of you who don't, don't know, uh, Anglo, you know, white America, found out about uh, Monument Valley thanks to the location discoverer who gave it to John Ford, the famous uh, film director. Um, And all those John Wayne movies in the 30s, she wore a yellow ribbon and stagecoach and like that um, were shot in Monument Valley. Um, And Jerry was literally saying, see, that's the opening of Stagecoach. And, uh, you know, he really, he'd spent a lot of time in motel rooms in the 60s, staring at the screen, playing his guitar and, and you know sound off, but looking at the screen. And he knew more about movies than anybody you ever, you ever imagined. And I just was sitting there thinking, this is, and I, again, you have to understand it, the world of Grateful Dead weird was actually a very positive adjective. That it had to be one of the weirdest moments in my life and it could never have happened, except that I was hanging around with these, these lowlifes. The thing about working with the Grateful Dead was, I, I, and, it, and it did, God knows it rocked my world for 14 years. Well, it was the greatest job in the whole world for a number of reasons. One is that I'm fairly self, I, I don't need much managing, you know, point, point me. Um, and Garcia uh, was the leader who wouldn't lead. He had a, a relationship with everybody else in the band that was kind of um I always think of it as gravitational. everybody came around, you know, sort of focused in on him, not because he was barking orders or you know even suggest making suggestions. it was just it was charisma, I mean he attracted people um I recently had the the uh fun of uh, producing um a box set on behalf of the estate of his music before the Grateful Dead called. Amazingly, before the dead. And uh the first side, it's a six-disc package. And the first side is um he he'd gotten out of the army uh with it was it was a mutually amicable split. Uh they threw him out and he was glad. Um uh, and he um he was living in Palo Alto uh and had met this Robert Hunter who would go on to be his writing partner. Um he'd been there like Five months, and uh, they had a duo, Bob and Jerry, um, uh, Jerry singing and playing and, and Robert singing, and they did a, a gig um, for a mutual friend of theirs, uh, Bridget her birthday her 16th birthday party, and there's you know 20 people in the living room, and you can feel he was 18, he wasn't even nineteen yet. You can feel the attention in the room on Jerry there was just something about him that people connected with that sort of never changed. Um, but he didn't want to make decisions. I, I once called him boss and somebody said, don't call him boss. And he, Jerry said, I, right, he can call me boss. Just don't ask me to make decisions. Um, and that was really the way he, he approached it. Um, you know, you read rock and roll history and, and there's, there's, um, uh, you know, I mean, there's Wyman and 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 George Harrison complaining about, you know, the the, the writing partnerships, for instance, of of uh, the Glimmer Twins and, and Lennon McCartney. In The Grateful Dead, Jerry did everything short of using rubber hoses to force Bob Weir to write songs because he didn't want it, the band to be just him and Hunter. There were early albums where it was pretty much just them because they were written all the good songs. By the last one, Brent Midland, who was who was you know the new guy, he got the most out- songs because he'd written the best songs, and everybody agreed. You know there was um, there was there was some I re- I can't remember it, but there was some band uh, infamously where um, where uh, a couple of the guys in the band started working on a new song, and leaving out guy number three, he starts breaking the door down because he knows that millions in in royalties are being you know forged in that room and he wants his piece uh as i say that just did not happen with uh, with garcia around he set some i was going to say boundaries but that's not right the right word he, he 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 embodied uh characteristics about not doing things for money respecting your audience uh all that that people followed again, not because he was the boss, but because it became, you know, obviously, um, obvious to everyone that it was the right thing to do.
0: You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Lee. It is part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. Today's guest, Dennis McNally, giving us some more insider insights, into the legendary band, The Grateful Dead.
1: The thing that would make you crazy about working for The Grateful Dead is because he did not want to take responsibility, nor anybody else in the band, for instance, for a lot of stuff. The crew, when it came to the stage, the crew ran things. Now, somebody has to. I mean, you have to control flow. You, I mean, if, with the Rolling Stones, I, I, I gather, if it's not, other than wives, or possibly hot girlfriends, nobody was on the stage, which is, you know, one solution. But grateful again, you, you're, you're dealing with anarchists here. So there were lots of people on the stage that came and they went. And they, I was just do, doing an interview um, with Steve Farish, who was one of those crew members, uh, who was talking about how people, particularly really, really high people would come up on the stage and they would want to touch things. And of course, that was a very bad idea. And, uh, and it's also true, um, I wasn't there, but it was, I I'm, I'm, was assured it was true that a young woman um, just very casually stumbled over something and the sound, no, was it the sound of the lights? See, it's been a while since I heard the story, but one or the other on one half of the stage went out because she kicked something, um, you know? So obviously the crew had a major responsibility and they, you know, they, uh, they embraced it, shall we say. Not always kindly, but in general, working with the Grateful Dead, and this is one of the truest things I ever heard in my life. The head of the, uh, the Grateful Dead's road crew, who's the, actually the president of the corporation, was a man named uh, Lawrence Shurt, uh, commonly called Ramrod. Uh, Ramrod was one of the best people I ever got to know. He's passed, unfortunately. Um, and uh, we had done a show again at RFK Stadium, and it, which meant uh, it was midsummer, which meant it was disgusting. It was 100 degrees and 100% humidity, and it was just miserable, and we'd been out there. He and I had been out there for like 12 hours, and um, we were leaving, and um, we got to the top of the stairs, and I happened to be walking next to him, and he said, and he sort of looked around and then he sighed and he said, "At least it's not a real job." Which said it all. Um, we, you know, it wasn't a real job. I didn't have a real job with the Grateful Dead. I was working for the Grateful Dead. That's not part of the real world entirely, um, and and uh, you know, certainly none of the things about uh, you know time clocks and and reporting to your superior you had to do your job and you probably had to work twice as hard as any corporate job but it was in service of saving the world or something whatever it was it wasn't about uh, i mean we, i wanted my paycheck but it wasn't about just about making money or making a profit for the band um it was it was about serving the music and the music was there to change people's minds. And it was a family. The thing about the Grateful Dead is they had an experience for several months that is, I think, unique. Now, lots and lots of musicians have played music while very, very high. Jimi Hendrix probably holds the record. But um, the fact is that uh, for the two months that they dropped out of the music business and played in the acid tests with Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, uh, they experienced a situation in which they weren't the show. They were the soundtrack. The audience, everybody in the room was the show. That was what, what the acid test was about. And uh, they could play or not play. And there were shows, there were acid tests that they didn't really play. Uh, there was one in particular where just as they started, Bill Kurtzman decided that he needed to adjust the setup of his drums and sort of took them apart and put them back together again for the next three hours. And, So they didn't play a lot of music um, that night. Uh, So the the point is uh, they came to see the uh, the audience, that is to say the people in front of them. And when they went back to regular gigs, it was the audience, quote unquote, as partners. The, The traditional status of all performers, classical, not necessarily, I suppose, uh, religious things where it's a little different, but anyway, um, is that the you know the the performer is up high and offering his art or her art to the audience, and the audience you know applauds and says thank you, we love you. And in this case, um, they had a situation in which the people in front of them were were them, <laughs> uh, especially if you're high enough. Um, and we're, but we're very much part. Uh, it was a level field, um, and um, there was a pinch of that even when they were playing to fifty thousand people at giant stadium. You know, they they just they they had this, uh, and certainly Jerry never forgot that. Um, you know, it's a partnership. It's they're they're partners in crime. Oh, we had a manager. We had we had accountants and uh, a, an attorney. Um, the manager was not a manager in the conventional sense because he did not have a percentage. He did not have the right to hire and fire. He was an employee too, um, a well employed, well paid employee. We were all well paid, for that matter. I mean, you had crew members making six figures. You know, um, which to put it, this is back when six figures meant something. But at one point, they had three managers. I'm grateful they sort of tried everything. Uh, for dealing with management, but for the the, the last ten years uh, of the band, uh, it was a guy named Cameron Sears. At this point, you know they they've been going twenty years, um, and what he had to do was simply make sure that they got what they you know sort of what they wanted out of their situations. It was it was anarchy, which is actually very conservative. Now that sounds contradictory, but as an example in the band decision making one loud no was a veto everybody had veto rights so that means that you only do what everybody agrees on other than playing shows which you know pretty much fell in certain parameters and one band member supervised the touring committee to you know approve what was worked out but that fell into a very comfortable groove that everybody knew what was going you know we 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 had our calendar year worked out. There was a spring tour, a summer tour, a fall tour, a couple around, a couple around the Bay Area here and there and so forth. Um, but it meant that you know, any other project, um, a movie or this or that, whatever, um, somebody would object, you know, might very possibly object. Or they'd all just go, yeah, sure, Jerry, you do, you know. There was friction. <laughs> there was certainly, fr- I mean, they were human. All I can say is it worked very, very well. Um, in terms of, folks got what they wanted. Pigpen died. Um, many keyboard players died. The only th- Keith and Donna Keith and Donna left uh, because they felt, uh, basically, they just sort of felt well they were both doing far too much uh, alcohol and other things uh, that was that that w- then that was good for him, them um, and and uh they just felt it it consumed and it and it it was consuming brent midland died um uh, and i know jerry i always felt that jerry kind of never recovered from that 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 jerry felt that the grateful dead had sort of turned monstrous and consumed brent brent had some deep issues of self-esteem that went long before he got to the grateful dead so, you know, it wasn't just the Grateful Dead, but it, they were the focus of an enormous amount of energy from literally, you know, a million people. Um, and uh, it was it was uh, demanding. I mean, Jerry couldn't leave his hotel room on the road. Okay, it, it, and it fell most on Jerry. On, on Jerry. One of the, my favorite moments with the Grateful Dead, and it rocked my world, was um, I got, we were in the Chicago, and there was a wonderful traveling uh, Monet exhibit um, of like five examples of the same visual, but each varying according to time of day or time of month, uh, time of year, whatever. A haystack, you know, haystack in the spring and the fall. And it was an amazing show, and uh, I got uh, the band an hour alone. Jerry could not go to an art a, a, a museum without you know attracting a crowd, so he got to do we you know we we got to do that. Um, and uh, all they had all they had to do was sign some autographs for the people who worked overtime to keep the it was after you know the the place closed for the day, so. Um, you know, that was wonderful. And and the um the great thing about it was about a month later, not very much longer later, we went to Europe and had a day off in Paris. And most of us had been in Paris and you know, done most of the many, you know, the biggest sites. Um, so we all a number of us went to Giverny, to Monet's home. Um, and uh once again there was a Ramrod uh the wise and he really was um he and i were walking to be honest we were smoking a joint we were walking around monet's garden it was just the two of us and he was looking at the the famous chinese bridge um and so ramrod he just looked and he said you know he got it right well Let me correct something back in that. Remember, he died of a heart attack, Jerry Dean. And he was clean, I might add, when he died. Um, He had committed uh, to to changing that. What he died of was um, the self-neglect of a guy into his 50s who still didn't exercise, smoked cigarettes, ate horribly, um, and had raging diabetes. So, you know, he died of almost everybody over 40 recognizes, okay, I got to get a little exercise and be a little judicious about what I eat and so forth and quit the cigarettes. Uh, and, you know, he just did not, again, he did not want to take responsibility for that kind of stuff. It, they're connected, the drug abuse, but it, it wasn't the drugs that killed him. It was the cheeseburgers. I will, I will just observe the one thing about the Grateful Dead is that, that, um, they, um, I thought, start the sentence over again. So, the, you know, they did this, uh, in 2015, they did uh, a series of shows called "Fairly Thee Well, to the official end of the Grateful Dead. 2015. And they, they ended up in, uh, in, uh, highly, you know, sold at three stadium, sold out stadium shows and and national uh, streaming uh, uh, sales that were, you know, off the the charts. And um, I thought that that was, you know, sort of things would start sort of fading away because all things, to coin a phrase, all things must pass and, you know, stuff will. And I was quite wrong because what I realized, came to realize within six months, after was that, um, and of course there's still Dead & Company, but beside that, um, Deadheads had come to the conclusion that they were not just in love with the band, they were in love with the music. And it, it mattered who played it, but that was a matter of taste. And in fact, I would argue quite seriously that there are vastly more Deadheads now than there were in 1995 when Jerry died. And there are probably more deadheads who never saw Jerry than us old farts, uh, because um, there's a band called J-Rad, uh, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, very, very good. And I like them a lot. And I went to a sh- show of theirs at Frost Amphitheater in, um, in Palo Alto, 9,000 people. And I turned. I was up near the front and I turned around and looked and it was exactly the same demographic as it had been 50 years before. Some young people, mostly, you know, some really young people in their you know, mid-teens and high school and college people on up to old guys. It's like nobody left. <laughs> and these more and more young kids just keep, because in every group of people, there's a niche, and it is a niche, but, but uh, there's a, a group of people that want to be surprised, that, want, that don't want to hear note for note. Uh, They don't want to hear what they heard on the radio, which is good because we're rarely played on the radio except for certain niche shows. And, you know, that's Deadheads.
0: That's Deadheads indeed. And great insider insights from Mr. Dennis McNally, an author himself, wrote a book on Jet Kerouac, which uh, Jerry Jerry Garcia discovered, invited him along to join the crew, and he became their publicist for a good 15 years and then stayed with them a lot longer uh, when Jerry passed away in the mid-90s. So there you have it. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. It is part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. We'll be back with more fun and frolics next week. Thank you for listening. It's NFL Draft
2: season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.